Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to episode 247 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie loving podcast of my movie loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Once upon a time, I was really, really good about bringing new voices onto this show. Every few episodes, I'd reach out to someone I'd only ever known on Twitter or from following their writing and bring them into Break Bread. However, I got pretty bad about that, and as time went on, I just stopped seeking new voices. I know, it's bad. Well, it's time to get back on that horse. It's time to start reaching out again and making some new friends, because that's the only way to keep things fresh, right? New blood and all that? We begin today, and I'm very excited because today's guest is the brains behind Cinema Cities, a site mainly dedicated to classics, but with a few contemporary selections thrown in. We're across a wire to California. Keisha Howarth is here. How are you, Keisha Howarth? Oh, I'm good. How are you doing today? Our, our cases are rising, so I'm a little bit stressed, but uh, other than yeah. that... Yeah, we actually just hit 1 million cases today in California, so you know, oh, that's how boy. it's going. Oh, man. <laughs> I can feel my anxiety rising. On episode 247, we will be discussing David Byrne's American Utopia. We'll be turning the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn about Keisha. This is Know Your Enemy. All right, so apparently you listened to this show, which pretty much just made my week, so you know how some of this goes. <laughs> Keisha, what was the first film you can remember seeing in a theater? My early movie-going experiences, I don't remember that well, but from what I remember being told, apparently my first movie that I saw in a theater, or at least one of, was the original Star Wars. Um, oh, wow. This would have been the 1997 re-release <laughs> Which means it was like the special edition version. Right, right. So, I mean, um, it, that's, that's funny on several levels because first of all, you know, you, you didn't see the, the OG version. And right. second of all, you've just gone and made me feel good and old. So, good work. <laughs> Sorry. This show has been on for 10 years. So, as far as a podcast goes, I'm a senior citizen these days. And as time has gone on and I've got new guests on, I'm noticing that that first movie is getting newer and newer and newer. So I'm, I'm getting used to the trend. Let's see, I would have been, well, I'm going to age you some more. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say. I would have been five when I would, saw this. So um, <laughs> I don't remember specific details about, honestly, I my first uh, Star Wars in a theater memory would have been two years later with Phantom Menace. Okay, well, tell us and, about that. So, like, where, I'm, I'm assuming, was this in California somewhere? Yeah, Southern California. And um, this really remembers seeing, like, that um, finale with the Duel of the Fates, the whole right. lightsaber battle between Darth Maul, Qui-Gon Jinn, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and just kind of um, being amazed by it back then. I wouldn't have really thought about the whole plotting issues that oh, a lot no. of people complain about with the prequels because yeah. I was just like an impressionable child. Funny, because in a way, those movies, they really are meant for kids. You know, like I, I know that yeah. we assign all kinds of maturity onto them and all kinds of illusions or whatever. But I mean, it's battles in space. Right. To the day, right? Like, who are we making these for? True. But I do remember like with, um, I guess, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it with <laughs> Qui-Gon's funeral at the end and just like kind of the focus on um, 
Palpatine and just um, little Anakin and kind of like, I think in the back of my mind, I still kind of knew like, oh, this is like set up for like what happens in the older. Ah, so yeah, the, so, the, like you were already tuned in at the tender age of seven. I do wonder, like, you know, obviously it's kind of a foggy memory, but I do wonder if, you know, when you went to see it, if it was one of the screenings where people were really, really ramped up and like dressed in costumes and cheering. Oh, yeah. Because um, it's it's one of the, that is one thing I do like about Star Wars is it's one of the few film series out there where like the fans show up and make it a carnival. Yes. Yeah. That's, f- I mean, I'm personally not that fan that dresses up, but I mean, oh, no, I'll wear like either, a t-shirt. But... So yeah, yeah. I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah. That's as far as I ever go. T-shirt and a t-shirt I'm out. All right. Conversely, what is one of the last movies you watched? That's not one of the movies we're going to talk about today. So I've been watching a lot of film noir for November. <laughs> ah, yes. Yes. The last movie I watched last night was um, this like, B picture called The Killer That Stalked New York it's from 1950. That's a great title. Yeah, it's a great title. And you wouldn't think this from the title, but the movie follows Evelyn Keyes. She plays a jewel thief. She's returning from Cuba. She had just like sent her husband the diamonds she smuggled. The authorities are on her tail, which so she's trying to avoid them. What she doesn't realize is what she also smuggled from Cuba with smallpox so Uh, she uh, starts she unknowingly starts a smallpox epidemic in new york city oh my god this thing sounds like so i was like this is a little too timely for me right now (laughs) because there's like this semi-documentary type uh footage feel that they're going for at some points because they they have a cheesy narrator for some parts of the movie of course there's like a there's a montage where they're vaccinating the whole city. And in that <laughs> montage, they even include people who are like protesting the vaccinations. Oh my I'm God. Like, this is 1950. This is insane. I, I totally need to see this movie now. I, I'm looking at the page for this movie and the, uh, the poster for it is epic in that very pulp fiction kind of way. Yes. Uh, with, um, the, the the star Evelyn Key is looking just like magnificent in this red turtleneck, uh, all rendered in these like, you know, kind of old school colors. Yeah, you know, I, I did Noir November last year. I didn't really uh, latch onto it this year just because my, I knew my November was going to be a little bit too busy. But uh, how's Noir November been going for you? I mean, I've been um, participating in it since I want to say like 2012. Oh, wow. Yeah, I love film noir, and I, I think at this point I've seen all, like, the well-known ones, so now it's just, like, kind of going into, like, the lesser-known, <laughs> like, this one. Yeah. Yes. Um, and what's a minor thing that's great about these types of movies, um, a lot of them are available on YouTube, which is how I watch this one. Oh. And a lot of them are under 90 minutes, like this yeah. one. I think this one's, like, 80 minutes. 79 minutes. Yeah, that's a chill. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so that was that. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. um, what's also crazy about that movie is it came out the same year as a Eli Kazan movie called Panic in the Streets, which is also about trying to catch Jack Palance in his film debut, by the way, um, who is um, spreading some sort of disease too. So there's there was like some pandemic fear, I guess, in 1950. Maybe like of polio or something like that. Like I think that was around that time. But yeah, it's it's trippy consuming any kind of culture. Like I know when this all started, everybody kind of 
got their knickers in a twist about contagion. But there is a mm-hmm. lot more fiction out there, both in terms of film and books and you name it, that deals with pandemics uh, breaking out. And it's all just way too on the nose living through it. Um, so the, your your choice, I mean, sounds really damn cool. Um, and and I, the, the one thing, like you said, like I love that you're so far in with Noir Vember that you're well past the staples like double indemnity and the big sleep right. ones that were going <laughs> for the killer that stalked New York. Um, that is a good choice. I'm totally going to have to look that up now. Thank you for that. Uh, Keisha, what is one of the worst movies you have ever seen? I can tell you one of the worst movies I've seen this year, at least. Sure. Um, Let's do that. TCM had a star of the month tribute to Jane Russell a few months ago. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll finally get around to watching the outlaw. <laughs> the Howard Hughes directed Western. Oh no. And um I had heard things about this movie that were bad, but it did not prepare me for just how bad it was. What makes because it so bad? It it like plays almost like it's a parody, but they're definitely playing it straight, which is just kind of bizarre. It has like really bizarre music cues and sound effects and the whole storyline with Jane Russell's character and um, I think it's Billy the Kid is just very, very problematic in that he comes on to her and it's heavily implied that he rapes her. Oh, great. And yeah, so lovely. But of course, by the end, they are happy and together and all is well. So <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. Okay. I mean, like this thing, again, as an epic poster, so my, my, the posters I'll be including in the show notes are getting their workout today. (laughs) Um, My God, like Howard Hughes, I I always kind of, he's, he's always kind of that guy that I really wonder about, you know, because yeah. he was just, he was a rich guy that could make movies because he wanted to. He didn't like study it. He didn't like have to work his way up or anything like that. And he certainly didn't have any actual skills with the craft. Like he, I, I kind of feel like he almost just got lucky from pure tenacity to do so. And I haven't seen his other movie, Hell's Angels, which I've heard is a lot better. Just the things I've heard are about him are fascinating. I mean, his behind the scenes stories, just working at RKO. And even just making this movie are a lot better. And of course, made for a better movie in The Aviator than The Outlaws. Yeah, 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 no so. kidding. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, that's that's the, the bonkers thing about watching the classics is, I mean, there's a lot, I, and I'm a, I'm a fan as well. And there's a lot of times where you kind of just have to, you know, nod, sigh, and move on because we're realizing more and more about how much more and more was completely unacceptable then and right. now. But then there's sometimes where it's just, it's, it's, it becomes just such a chore. Like the one that I watched recently that I finally scratched off my blind spot list was um, once upon a time in America. And that film is very rapey, like very, very rapey. I have not seen that movie yet. So I'm (laughs) it's, I mean, it's worth watching once just say you did. It is epic. It's, it's got some incredible sequences in it. It's really sweeping and just absolutely ambitious. But it's not the kind of thing that I would watch repeatedly um, right. because, it, you know, just because it has these these tropes to it or even I mean, to a less to a much lesser extent, even rewatching something like um, New York, New York by Scorsese, mm-hmm. uh, the whole the whole first like 30 minutes are Robert De Niro badgering Liza for her number. 
you know yeah once upon a time we would have found that as as you know tenacious and and you know he was really determined because he really felt something for this girl but now mm. we're like no that's just you know uh. so you yeah know, <laughs> that's that is the one thing that i you know i'm sure everybody who loves classics can agree on is watching them now there's there's a, a little bit of the joy has been sapped out of them. Now I'd never say like, yeah, pack them up and put them in a vault. Some of them we should probably pack up and put in a vault, but <laughs> generally speaking, it's just like, okay, remember the context, move on and let's circle the ones that are really egregious, like the outlaw and, and those ones. And we can talk about those on another, on another plane. Yeah. You're, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not anxious to see. I mean, I'm kind of, I, I kind of want to get like five minutes of it just to see, but uh, yeah, that, that's a good idea. All right, we'll do that way. Well, speaking of classics and essential, what is a classic or essential that you haven't seen? I was actually thinking about the movies I had considered for your Blind Spot oh, series. Yeah. And there was one that I kept thinking, like, oh, I won't do it this year, maybe next year. <laughs> and um, I was thinking I'd get to it eventually, and I still haven't. It's The Terminator. <laughs> Oh, okay. I mean, a couple things. One, that is absolutely a classic now because time marches on and that movie is like almost 40 years old. Um, I <laughs> saw somebody on Twitter the other day was actually saying they're, they wanted their kid to watch Terminator 2, but they'd never seen the Terminator, so they just wanted to skip straight to T2. Okay. Have you seen any of them? I haven't seen any of them. Okay. I've I've only been interested in the first two. And I yeah. think my lack of interest in the rest of the franchise has is very smart. Yes. Um, has put it, me from actually checking oh, them out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, like <laughs> the, the crazy thing with going from Terminator to Terminator two is that the effects take a quantum leap forward. Like it's not even okay. funny how much what was the difference between the releases, how much, Time seven passed. years seven years 1984 oh, okay. and 1991 yeah like i mean oh, okay. it, it's it seems like a short amount of time really yeah. but i mean certainly in the speed of certainly considering the speed that james cameron works these days getting getting <laughs> two films out of him within seven years seems swift but um the 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 effects in the original terminator i mean they were cool for the time because you had these animatronics so like watching these little watching this like metallic skeleton like move around was very cool in that kind of way and certainly when it was mm -hmm. closer when they could get more detailed without having to build a whole skeleton it was very cool but it's got this really kind of grimy 80s veneer to the whole thing like the hairstyles are absurd <laughs> and the styling I'm on sure. is absurd the story itself is still pretty cool. Um, and, and it's just by the time it gets to T2, it's I mean, now it all kind of looks dated in the 90s way, but it it's it's much more passable. Um, yeah, Terminator, I, I think it holds up as an action film. Um, it's a it's a really cool sci fi story. It's one of those sci fi stories where you're messing around with time. So, you know, that, okay. that's always that's always fun. Um, and Arnold, I mean, the cool thing about Arnold is that he's not trying too hard. He's basically just there to look badass and spout off the <laughs> yeah. lines. So okay. it's, yeah, I, I, I'd say it, it holds up and it's worth, and it's worth checking out. Yeah. Pick like, pick a night where you've got, you know, from like supper time on and just watch those two together and call it a day. Yeah. Cause that, I think that's what my plan has always been to just like do a double feature of it, but I just have not gone around to it for whatever reason, but. 
This is pushing me towards it more. <laughs> I mean, that that's usually the way these these blind spots go, right? Like they're they're always yeah. on a list collecting dust somewhere. And Lord knows I've got enough lists on Letterboxd that I'm still oh poking away through for <laughs> years. Uh, and that's 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 how they end up lingering there. So um, yeah, I'm excited. It's 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 fun. It's got some stupid moments. It's got some cheesy moments, but uh, it's it's certainly uh, a good time. And and not like not too heavy. It's not like eating your vegetables. You know what I mean. I think that's the other thing. Okay. Yeah. When when we make up these lists is, I mean one of the, one of the movies on my list is Shoah. I haven't seen like, that either. And that's I, yeah, yeah, because because you know I feel like I really should have by now. I own it, but it's nine hours and it's really yeah. heavy. You know so that, that's 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 you have to be in the right mindset for nine hours. You have to have the yeah. right patience. Yes. <laughs> So okay, I uh, I, I fully uh, I, I'm on board for this, and I, I really look forward to you getting the chance to see Terminator for the first time. Yes, I'll let you know when All I right. finally watch him. Nice. Looking forward to the tweet. Last but not <laughs> least, what is a film that, for any rhyme or reason, you wish you'd made? So for this question, I approached it from what movie would I just want to be on the set of and sure. see how they did it, okay. and then with today's movie in mind. I was thinking of musicals and just because in real life, you you don't really live like how you would in a musical bursting out into song, that sort of thing. Maybe you um, don't. <laughs> well, okay. I speak for <laughs> I myself. I break into song and time. Please continue. Um, so I was starting to think of musicals I like. Um, and I was thinking of, I would love to be on the set of like a Busby Berkeley musical. Okay. And so for this one, I'm picking um, this early 30s movie called Footlight Parade because the finale number is just like extravagant um, called By a Waterfall. And it has the dancers make like this human fountain like towards the end. It's just it's crazy watching it because in context of the movie, they're putting on a stage show. But <laughs> this is obviously too much for to be seen on a stage, like if you're in the audience. So right. it only makes sense for just watching. Oh, it. I'm seeing pictures of it now and it looks, it looks just bananas. It's like a long number, but right. Cause it starts off with them like actually going down a waterfall. Like in the back of my mind, I'm like, how do they put this on stage? Like in the story of this movie, but it's magnificent to watch though. So I'd want to see just how he puts it together and just, how he choreographs all the geometric uh, shapes that you see from above, that sort of thing. I'd love to just be running sandwiches on that movie or something like yes, that. Yes, exactly. In the mail just to watch it. It's it's kind of nuts that these things were even made. I mean, they were certainly something that would sell at the time because it right. was you know, the early days of, of mainstream film and you would get audiences in by this kind of, like, you know, by spectacle. Like, you wouldn't make a kind of movie like you wouldn't make a low boil drama and expect to make a whole lot of cash mm-hmm. um the real money was in stuff like this and gangster movies and westerns and those kinds of things mm-hmm. so yeah the the more lavish the spectacle you could put together the more money you were making it back but it's it's kind of crazy to consider like these sets would have required like a full-sized swimming pool and right you know, there was ways that, you know, there's a lot of trickery going on here, but there's still a lot of practicality to doing this. And you kind of wonder, like, mm-hmm. how crazy you have to be to try this. I mean, you're talking about you'd like to be on the set to make it. I'd just love to be in the room when they pitch it 
yeah here's your check go ahead yeah and then also just um kind of seeing how they go about putting the story together because this would have been the pre-code era when they could get away with a lot more risque things so that'd be fun to see too definitely Oh, good choice. And that that is one I think like that's one where I've seen scenes from it, but I've never seen the whole thing. So I think I'm you're at you're giving me homework now. That's not usually how this <laughs> how this show goes. But uh, I, I'm here for it. So thank you for that. Well, there we go. That's a bit about uh, Keisha. We'll learn more when we inevitably have her back for another episode because we're never we're not stopping at just one appearance. Now you're you're in the family. You're gonna you're gonna be added to the rotation. So expect to expect the, at least a yearly invite at this point. Well, I will just RSVP in advance and. Come on. For now, though, we have a movie to go on to. Our movie is on uh, HBO these days. It's uh, the new slang for this episode. David Burns, American Utopia, is right after this. David Byrne's American Utopia is directed by Spike Lee, written and starring, you guessed it, David Byrne. American Utopia is the movie of the staging of a rock album. Got that? Good. Beginning in 2019, rock and roll icon David Byrne began a Broadway run of a tour he'd been playing in support of his 2018 album of the same name. American Utopia. The show features many songs from American Utopia, several songs by Burns' old band, The Talking Heads, and one Janelle Monet cover thrown in for good measure. The whole dog and pony show is captured by Oscar-winning director Spike Lee. Watching American Utopia feels strange. People are out in public, people are close together, it's a gathering that is completely non-essential. The film could have been captured on January 1st of this year, and yet watching it now in November of 2020, it feels like it's something that happened a decade ago. And yet, and yet, and yet, one cannot deny that there seems to be an immediacy about the film. So, pop quiz hotshot. Is there something timely about American Utopia? What about this snapshot of another time, and by another time I really mean last <laughs> year, seems appropriate for these crazy times that we find ourselves in. Obviously, we can't go to any Broadway shows or concerts right now. But with David Byrne's American Utopia, his whole message in his show is about connection and coming together, especially through technology, which we're doing a lot of these days, which you and I are doing right now. I think it is still relevant, despite us not being able to be in the audience with him. It's relevant to what we're going through right now. You know, to answer my own question, something I gleaned on is a lyric in the opening number, uh, a song called Here, which is a really lovely sequence that he mostly does with this, you know, model brain in his hand and he Mm -hmm. kind of starts it sitting at this table um, in a lovely kind of symmetrical shot. Uh, But the lyric goes, here is a section that continues living even when other sections are removed. And I thought that that's, mm. you know, that's really like, like you say, the core of the show and how we are continuing on, even as all of these other avenues are being, you know, either 
delayed or canceled or stopped or whatnot, everything from, you know, being able to interact to being able to, to see live experiences, you know, a section of us is still continuing. So you're, you're right. It is still quite timely in that way. I gathered that you really dug this movie. Oh, yes, it was. It was cathartic. I mean, obviously, I would love to be watching movies in a movie theater, but I was I think I liked seeing this more just in my living room so I could, Mm. you know, freely move around to the music. I still felt like I was there, like with the audience, just because of how intimate it was intimately filmed it was. Yeah. And just kind of felt like I was there experiencing the music, too. Yeah, it, it's it's funny because this movie actually opened the Toronto Film Festival this year. Um, I did not uh, catch up with this one for several reasons, but when I thought about the fact that it played, you know, it played theaters at the Toronto Film Festival, the one thing I did think to myself was this would have been great to hear in a theater, like to hear this soundtrack. Yeah, that's true. In in a great theater, and just to kind of really lose myself in it. But you're right. It, it's it is so intimate that it still plays really well on the couch and and lets you kind of get lost in the music and the visuals. Mm-hmm. So I was really anxious to see this um, when I you know when I first heard that it was being filmed. I was anxious to see this as a stage show. Um, I, the, when I first kind of started reading about it and saw two little numbers from it that he performed last year on Saturday Night Live, yeah. I was I was really I really did want to see a staging of it. And I'm jealous because my younger brother actually saw the original tour that he did. Oh, wow. where he was like, yeah, doing this kind of staging before he set up camp in New York. Um, but yeah, I, I I really loved this movie. I was kind of surprised at how much I love this movie. Like I like David Byrne a lot, but I sometimes see a lot of these projects as just kind of vanity captures. Like I'm just going to yeah. capture this tour for posterity. Um, this one, though, is is a wonderful little experience. I was listening to a couple interviews with him and Spike Lee, and I love that they didn't take this as just like, oh, we're just going to record the show. When you get someone like Spike Lee, you want to do something with it. And so there's a lot of close-ups, there's different camera angles, and there's even some sequences where the camera is kind of moving with the choreography, Mm-hmm. that you wouldn't necessarily experience just even being there in person. So it gives no. it a whole like different sort of movie experience. It's it's like the old line about how Gene Kelly, when he directed uh, the, the musicals that he was in, uh, he always choreographed the camera to the dancing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, we should, we should probably talk about Spike because first of all, Spike's having a great year between this movie yes. and, and the five bloods um it's it you know the only thing that's unfortunate is spike is having a great year in a year where we can't go and see this the, these i know <laughs> um although you know he was smart he buddied up to some places where his films were going to get out no matter what you know spike is so prolific he is a consummate pro the guy's a damn film professor and i think yeah you're you're right films like this where he really gets to show off his attention to the craft um, really do him a great service. I always think about how, you know, people think about like Scorsese and the way he mm-hmm. used to map out concert films, like when he was like doing concert films with like the, the Stones and those kinds of things, he would like map mm-hmm. out kind of shot by shot um, and the band. It's quite clear in what we see. Spike really took the time 
to capture this well, not to just lock off a camera on sticks, but to exactly. really make the most out of out of what we saw. In the interviews I was listening to, he and his cinematographer, um, let's see, her name is Ellen Curis. Mm. They went to at least half a dozen shows just studying it and figuring out where they wanted to put the camera. Oh, Even wow. sitting, I think, in different vantage points. Because I think he was saying, like, initially he was, like, somewhere in the front. But then mm-hmm. on a subsequent viewing, he was somewhere like up above and he got to see more of the choreography, the Busby Berkeley type choreography. Yeah. Um, so that's why we see shots like that, which obviously you wouldn't see if you were at the show itself. It's it's kind of nuts because you think to yourself, like the cheap seats are the ones that really show off the moves the best. Like these, so his... Yeah. The, the the cool thing about this whole performance is Byrne and his band are all performing using wireless mics and wireless monitors for their instruments. So mm-hmm. they're able to completely move around the space in any which way they want, and they do. So there's, you know, scenes where they're lined up over here or they're moving symmetrically back and forth. There's one mm-hmm. number where they kind of move around like a chessboard. Um, and you think to yourself, if you saw this show and you were on the ground level, you know, you probably wouldn't notice some of the, some of this staging as well as you would if you were in the cheap seats. Yeah. I'm even wondering, like, as you mentioned, like the checkerboard type lighting, like what that even looks like from like the front row. Yeah. (laughs) Like if you would even notice that. No, no, I I totally wouldn't notice that. (laughs) Spike's a master um, for for good reason. So like David Byrne reaching out to him. The one thing I think that that is cool is we've got music and, and film styles kind of, crossing over that you know, that we don't necessarily have you know white directors capturing white artists and black directors capturing black artists it's like you know what you mm-hmm. are a talented artist i want to work with you and see what you bring to my work because when i think of david byrne i don't automatically just jump to spike lee right so I'm, I'm happy that he did and then they definitely have also the new york connection so that probably helps oh, yeah. the camaraderie in recognizing yeah. there's artistry Oh, totally. They, they've probably been at parties together for years. I know. Yeah, I can just totally see them like drunk as skunks at 3 a.m. saying, we got to do that movie. <laughs> I want to go to that party. I, I totally want to go to that party. <laughs> I, I imagine it's great. You coming into this, where were you on David Byrne himself? Prior to this year, I really had surface level knowledge of him and mm. the talking heads. Mm-hmm. And just a few months ago when I finally saw Stop Making Sense. And that's mm-hmm. when I like really dove into Talking Heads and David Byrne music. Okay. Um, but even before seeing um, that concert film, I had interest in seeing this movie. I think more just from the vantage point of like, oh, I like Spike Lee movies. I'm interested to see what he does with this type of movie. Yeah. I've actually seen David Byrne perform. I saw him perform in this uh, very strange um, concert bill where it was hosted by Rufus Wainwright, of all okay. things. Yeah. It was, so Rufus was there and David Byrne was there. Boy, George was another one of the singers. I want to say that um, Josh Groban was another one of the singers. And then there was one or two others who are escaping me at the moment. Uh, and it was called Gentlemen Prefer Broadway. And it was all, <laughs> all of these guys were singing songs, but they were only choosing songs that were traditionally sung by women. 
so they were so they were singing the woman's part, and, and it's okay. you know there were some times where you're like, oh, that doesn't sound right at all. It probably never did. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, like lyrically, like hearing what they were singing, like hearing the words you're singing, you're like, ooh, okay. Uh, I've dug the Talking Heads for about twenty years now, and I really got into them about uh, five or ten years ago. They're admittedly kind of arty, you know. They're, they they're, are. They're not the kind of thing that you're going to throw on and put in, in like, you know, start driving on the highway, rocking out to. But the one thing I do dig about Byrne in this movie is he might be doing the best version of himself. Like, I think he's aging very interestingly and very, very well. And this show and this music really suits him the best that he's been in quite some time. Yeah, I thought so, too. I mean, even just with my newfound knowledge of him yeah i think he does a really excellent job in collaborating with the other musicians on stage and not oh, totally. always having the spotlight on him necessarily there's focus on like the dancers the percussionists the songs themselves the way he sings them the way he performs them um he he really kind of strikes the best note like we'll probably i'm certain that we'll be talking about stop making sense a little bit later but you know this sort of to me showed another step in his artistic evolution that he wasn't completely out of ideas that he could still create i mean a lot of this music is new and yet it sound it fits with his classic stuff really Mm -hmm. well Yes. Um, and that he could create a, a live experience like this that's that's really engaging and not just you know a a vanity project where he's jerking off for two hours an interesting sort of like jukebox musical of um his newer songs and his songs with talking heads but he's able to like really connect them with his ideas of connection Mm -hmm. um and just sort of what america is experiencing right now and what we can do moving forward you mentioned earlier talk about the look of this show it's it's got a really unique vision both in terms of its live staging and what we get to see in this film yeah he mentions in the show just like the minimalistic approach to it and as you mentioned them being wireless and moving about from the outside just like maybe seeing a picture of the show it looks sort of cold but just like with the gray tones um monochromatic look but watching it it's like the opposite of that and how like kind of inviting he is with his music and the choreography. It reminds me a little bit of modern dance. Um, like they're the, the yeah. whole, the whole cast This like, you know, whether I think it's like about 15 of them all together, like his band and himself, they're all wearing gray suits um, with gray shirts too. Like there's no, um, there's no contrast to their costumes. Right. Um, and sometimes there's very little contrast to their costumes in the set behind them. Like, you know, the way the the set, this, the set is like these very thin chains, basically, that, that yeah. act like a curtain. And the, you, you're kind of relying on the lighting to give it a little pop of color. And sometimes it doesn't yes. even really give them a pop of color. But what I like about that, and maybe this was the intention the whole time, is it really lets you focus on the music and the movements. You don't get too lost in the costumes. Um, Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, like when you see like modern dancers and their tights look very nude. Yeah. You know know what I'm saying? And like the background Mm -hmm. is very, very white. So you're really just kind of zeroed in on what's playing instead of 
you know, this, this other trickery. Yeah. And just kind of focusing on them themselves and not being distracted by any other sort of props aside from maybe yeah. the brain in the beginning, but that was just him and himself too. So it was very focused and minimalistic and on the surface that, that sounds like it would be tremendously bland, you know, it's like, yeah. okay, we're going to perform <laughs> these in gray suits on a gray stage. And it's, it's like, okay, goody. Um, but it's so, lively like both in terms of like the songs they choose the way they arrangement the way they move about the stage and interact with one another and it's not it's never the same from number to number like there's always different people kind of gathered around him different people moving about the stage he's got you know this this like percussion section of like four percussionists or so that are playing congas or 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 like majorette drums lashed mm-hmm. to themselves he's got two good he's got a guitars and a bass um and and they constantly switch out and move around and they switch instruments so it never, yeah i was gonna mention that yeah yeah you it, it never it never feels stale even just from number to number i was noticing too like even with like switching out instruments sometimes it like sometimes it would be like really I guess instruments I've never seen before. Oh yeah. And like for a second be like kind of focused on that, but then you'd kind of get back into the performance itself. I sort of feel like I could watch this movie 12 times over and each time just watch a different musician. So I've seen this movie twice now because I've watched it again before this and I was definitely focusing on different people the second time around from seeing it the first time. Yeah, I mean, like, like the first time, your eyes kind of almost always go to burn, which is, you know, like the guy's got a shock of white hair. It's kind of hard not to. Yeah, look. I know. Um, but it, it's, it's yeah, like these people behind him are so interesting. Like even just one of his background singers is this this kind of uh, ginger dude who's performing yes. with very like glam makeup on. And, and, and mm-hmm. like he's got like a goatee and everything. So it's not like he's glammed up, but he's like a... a tiptoeing towards drag it's just something that he put on to stand out so i kind of i always and he moves really well and he sings really well so it's a lot of times i kind of find my focus going back to him um it's it's a it's a really great approach to this whole concert um also which he mentions in his show bringing in all these musicians from different backgrounds different countries yeah um like even with of course the gray suits it makes the stage not look so bland, I guess, as you could say, and just kind of bringing in different flavors all together. Like it's crazy. Cause I think there, there are, there's about like three or four Americans on the stage, but he, t- it seems like he handpicked people from every country that he could, he could find, including there's, there is one Canadian on the yes, stage. Yes. I did <laughs> notice that. <laughs> I was like, all right, we're representing. The one thing I do, I am curious about, cause you mentioned how, both of us had got into his music and, and come to this movie after stop making sense. Um, when these movies are made uh, a, a concert film of any given artist, they're usually packaged up for the fans. Would you say that this movie transcends fandom? I would think so. I mean, as someone pretty new to him, mm-hmm. I would say anyone who's maybe not as familiar could definitely get a lot of enjoyment out of this. I mean, it's something we can't experience in the real world right now. So yeah, there's that. Um, yeah, there's that aspect, but also just, I think his, even his message throughout the show, I think is universal and can 
um, reach people despite whatever people may think of the music itself. As like even just as a visual experience, I think it transcends fandom. Like a lot of the time when a, a band or a singer uh, wants to create a visual piece to their repertoire. Like I'm thinking a few years ago, there was um there was a Justin Timberlake concert that was actually it was filmed by Jonathan Demi of all people. Oh yeah. He, I think he was on his like 2020 tour. And you know, it's fine. It 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 captures the concert. It you know, if you like JT music, it's it's going to do the trick. It's not something that I would have seen myself paying to see in a theater and coming home and thinking to myself, yeah, that was that was time well spent. So along with transcending fandom of you have to like David Byrne to like this movie, you have to like concert films to like this movie. Meanwhile, like you say, I think that this is something that you can put on and just sink into and enjoy just coming in blind because of the technique that Spike brings to it and because of the staging that Byrne brings to it. Yeah, I think the lighting does so much for this show too. Um, Even if it's just like, straight on seeing it as you would in the audience it does a lot to kind of convey the performance and kind of working together with the choreography it's interesting that he implemented some a high-tech system to kind of get the lighting right because of course they're always they're constantly moving around the stage so you wonder kind of like how they would get the lighting right but they you might have noticed they had like some sort of tracking light on their shoulders oh no I never which, noticed that. um david was saying in some interview about how they had to they like use some computer program so that <laughs> the lighting would be able to follow everyone because since there's like a dozen people on stage it's hard to put like a single oh, spotlight wow. on each one it's interesting just how much he infused the lighting for this show to make it what it is did you have a favorite number now that you've seen it twice uh, there's a lot of numbers that I like. I liked, oh, you know what is the I Should Watch TV one is pretty cool. Oh, where he yeah. talks about, um, well, he introduces the numbers saying like how he kind of got into TV after a, some record deal with Talking Heads. So he got a television. Yeah, and, he finally um, got some money to buy one. Yes, yeah. And, um, and just kind of like the lighting for it and how he kind of comes from behind the chained curtain and then his musical ensembles all together kind of like um, almost like as if they were in the stands, but of course there aren't any stands on the stage. Right, just right. them kind of um, jamming together. And then they have a moment that is, you could recognize especially why Spike Lee would jump on this project where they kneel down and they show an image of Colin Kaepernick. Right. No, it's, it's an incredible number, Um, which I think it's kind of the first one to slow things down. Like the, the, the show up until that point has gone on for like seven or eight numbers. And each one is kind of getting more and more boisterous than the one, than the one before, like right before that is slippery Mm -hmm. people, which is a really, really, uh, you know, jam and number from talking heads. Um, mm-hmm. And then we kind of, and then we like slow things right down. Uh, and, and it's, yeah, you're right. It's a gorgeously staged number um, for me. Actually, my favorite number comes just a little bit after that. I liked the song glass, concrete and stone. Um, oh, that's a good one too. Yeah. Which the way that this one is performed is burn stays by himself on the stage and the band wraps around 
you know, the U of the, of like the other three sides of the box, but they've all got their instruments jutting forward through this chain curtain. So you're really just mm-hmm. seeing hands and instruments playing along. Oh yeah. It. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's glorious staging. It's not, it's not a complicated trick or anything like that, but it's just really lovely staging for a lovely song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great visual. Just seeing them kind of, I really love the chained curtain and the yeah. effects that it kind of gets from that. Yeah, me too. It's, it's, and I mean, the cool thing about it is that it, it looks from a distance, it looks, it doesn't look like chains. You know what yeah. I'm saying? It looks like mm-hmm. just kind of a, a really cool scrim that they're using. This movie and this music, like, would we say that this movie and this, this music is, is, is hopeful? Is optimistic? I would say so. I mean, even, of course, with the title, utopia in there i think it's optimistic but also not ignoring the realities of our situation Mm because i mean he conceived this um during the current administration so i think he's aware of the realities of the time we're living in right now but also just kind of being hopeful of where we can go if we collaborate and work together yeah, I think what I like about it most is that it it looks backwards and forwards at the same time. Uh, he totally could have done this as a talking hits show. He totally could have staged mm-hmm. this kind of thing with like a, a talking hits greatest hits set list and played on nostalgia. But by playing on music that is current, including, you know, we haven't really touched on the Janelle Monet cover, it tempers the past with the present. And, you know, it kind of makes you think that we're not done. You know, I think that's kind of what I like most about David Byrne is this is a guy who really, really could just coast on his name and keep in keep cashing in on checks. But by doing things like this, he's trying to say, you know, I'm like that brain I'm holding up at the beginning. If that's my brain, I don't think it's finished yet. I don't think it's finished growing and neither should ours. Yeah, I was I wrote down a couple of things he said throughout the show. I think with the Janelle Monet number, he's talking about how we're still a work in progress. There's possibility out there. So kind of going with what you said about the brain, we're still developing even as grown adults. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's when he starts talking about America, right? Yeah, that's when he really kind of does a deep dive yeah. into that. I mean, yeah, that's optimistic if you want to take a look at um, where America and and to some extent Canada has been where we are and, you know, saying we still could be this, even though things are not great, uh, things still could be this. Yeah, that's certainly optimistic. I guess it's just one of those sort of glass, half empty, half full type of situations just kind of depends on where your mind's at. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, well, we end every review here on the Matinee Cast uh, with souvenirs, something tangible or intangible, if you could take away from this movie and keep. Keisha Howarth, if you could take something away from David Byrne's American Utopia, what would you take? So I was, I mean, obviously, despite the minimalistic approach, there's a lot of kind of cool um, instruments and the brain prop and the suits yeah. that I really admire, but... Um, I was kind of avoiding the saying to your question, favorite performance, but I would want to bottle up the finale and just keep that. Oh yeah. That's a great nowhere. Answer. Yeah. Um, tell, tell people about that. So 
watching this, I mean, I didn't look at what songs he would be performing going into the movie. Right. But um, Road to Nowhere was a song that I had really um, grown to love and probably one of my top favorite Talking Heads songs. Mm -hmm. And before this song is performed, there's um, he and the song before that is One Fine Day, which feels like the final number. And so I was kind of expecting that to be the end of the show. But then all of a sudden Road to Nowhere starts playing and the crowd goes nuts and I'm going nuts too. I would just want to bottle up that performance and um, that feeling of like exhilaration. What's great about this too as a finale, the by this point they actually have the chain curtains have risen. And so you can kind of see the bare stage behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have their instruments at this point anymore either. Um, but they do grab them later because then it cuts all of a sudden to them actually going into the audience and just dancing with them, which must have been incredible in person. No kidding. And and the camera follows them through. Like there's a camera walking. You can sort of see when it's when it's like a close up versus a, a wide shot, you can sort of see there's like a guy walking yeah. along with a light to make sure that they're lit and a, a camera that's <laughs> following them through. And it just looks like absolute madness. I'm wondering if he did that for all the shows or if this was just when Spike was there filming. I want to um, believe that he did that for every show. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think they have plans to eventually get the show back. And if I get the chance, I'd love to be in that part of the audience just to experience uh, that final number (laughs) i have i have nothing but hope for you so i I do hope that you (laughs) you get that you chose a number so i'm going to choose a number um my number that i would choose as a souvenir is one that's early on and it's it's by this point the whole band is on the stage because they come on kind of in twos and threes and fours um Mm -hmm. i went with um this must be the place especially because that's the first one where that guitar line that that begins at that bass line that begins it gets a whoop out of the crowd and i always Mm -hmm. miss that like this is this is going to be the first year in my life since i started going to concerts this is going to be the first year where i didn't see a concert and the one thing i always love about going to a show is when that (laughs) When that number comes along that the whole crowd has been waiting to hear um, and you get that whoop, I loved that in, in This Must Be The Place. Um, so that would, that would be my souvenir from this movie. Um, and like you say, the chance that maybe I get to see this in the flesh at some time. We end every matinee cast with a rating on a scale of one to four stars. Keisha Howarth, what do you give David Burns' American Utopia on a scale of one to four? I have to give it the full four. I mean... And there wasn't anything that I didn't love about this. It was just a joy to watch. And I look forward to watching it numerous times when I I need to pick me up. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. This is this is pure joy. This is pure bliss. This is, you know, pure meeting of film and music. And it is, you know, right in the sweet spot of everything I, I go for. This is a four for sure. This is one this is one of the best you know, a hundred minutes or so that I've spent watching a movie this year. And, you know, part of that is we haven't had a whole lot of movies to watch this year, (laughs) but you know, this is, this is what I, this is what I need. This is what I want. I want along with the occasional moments of eating my vegetables. 
I want nothing but a two hour dessert. And that's exactly what this movie is. Hey, maybe we're wrong. Maybe you think this movie is hot garbage. I don't know how you would. Maybe you think this is the best movie ever made. I would love to know. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA, or Facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of David Burns' American Utopia? We are going to take a quick break here and uh, flip the record over. So come on back. We're going to play the other side right after this. We're back. She's Keisha. I'm Ryan, MatineeCast247. We've been talking about American Utopia, and this is the point in the show where we uh, go further down the spiral, uh, talk about more movies that you could go on to if you you know, didn't get enough of that dopamine rush. Um, why don't you get us started off, Keisha? What is a film that a person could go on to if they enjoyed the Spike Lee and uh, David Byrne joint that is American Utopia? I think we have to start with the most obvious, and that is Stop Making Sense, the concert movie he did in the 80s with Jonathan Demme. Yep. Yes, we do. <laughs> I think also, or with American Utopia, if you've seen Stop Making Sense, you probably recognize a couple of cues to that former mm-hmm. concert movie. I mean, even with just the suits themselves, the <laughs> gigantic suit he wears Um, and stop making sense is also gray but there's also a moment in american utopia where he's dancing with a lamp that is reminiscent of what we see in stop making sense yeah and stop making sense i i think this is uh this is certainly a concert movie that holds up um it obviously looks more of its time like it this movie's from 1984 so it's 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 kind of that kind of that kind of year on the show because we were talking about the Terminator (laughs) earlier the cool thing about stop making sense is that it was a it was a movie like american utopia that was constructed to play as a film so the audience isn't really a part of the film was as opposed to at the time there was usually kind of a, a lot of cuts of a sweeping camera back to the audience. When you think about mm-hmm. movies like, you know, Woodstock and those kind of movies and where the, the, the other place that they also have a parallel, like you mentioned the suits and the light bulb is they both from the, from the first number through the first few numbers, they build up. So stop making yes. sense begins with just David Byrne and his guitar. And then, um, you know, when, after that, uh, Tina joins them to play heaven and it's just the two of them on the stage. I mm-hmm. think by the time we get to the end of heaven, Chris and Jerry join them or if not, they're in there for the next number, but it's at yeah. that. And then they get in like the whole backing crew for like, uh, for by the time we get to things like found a job and slippery people. Um, yeah, I love that movie so much. I'm glad you brought it up. Cause I was gonna, if you didn't, um, and now you mentioned kind of, coming to it like last year or the year before do you remember like how you kind of stumbled onto it much of my movie viewing choices are dictated by whatever sleeving criterion channel and that oh, happened okay. one month so i'm like i better check this out um so that's how i really fell into it and of course before that i just heard like from numerous people it's like one of the greatest concert movies ever made and it, it certainly holds up to that title i think i listen i do love when you see a film or you read a book or you or you see a show or something like that. And it just gets you into this whole 
body of work that up until then you just hadn't had the time for. So the fact that this did that for you, I'm, I, I just love when that happens. Yeah, I mean, it's been a good time for me <laughs> just kind of diving into it. Another obvious card that we have to play. And that is um, a little bit of a lesser known obvious card. So maybe it's not an obvious card. Four years ago, there was a documentary created by the Ross Brothers, who are two of my favorite documentarians. They have one out this year um, about this dive bar in Las Vegas that's uh, closing down on its last day. And if you if you want to feel better about your life choices watch this movie this is a film from 2016 have you seen a movie called contemporary color i actually have not seen this but i heard this come up a few times in relation to american utopia yeah so it's a you know this one is more of an all-star type of show david byrne is kind of the master of ceremonies and, and the headliner but there's also you know artists like Nelly Furtado and uh, Zola Jesus and Tunyards and Lucius and St. Vincent, who I love like No Tomorrow. And the cool thing about this show is that it also wants to um, give a big deal of the stage to color guards um, from, from New York area. And so along with these bands that are playing on the main stage, and this is in an arena, um, you have, you know, these these like throwing flags and turning tumblings and that kind of thing happening in front of them. And they're playing off the musicians and playing with the musicians. And it's so wonderful. The Ross Brothers had this crazy way of capturing their movies that it's not just about like their subject, but it also kind of their, their movies oftentimes kind of take a wander just around the neighborhood. Um, the, okay. film, the film that I first came, came across them with was a film called Chapatulis, which is this movie about uh, my, my friend Bob Turnbull brought it up on a recent episode. And it's a movie about three boys just exploring New Orleans at night and just kind of wandering around and, you know, kind of getting into the type of trouble that boys get into. So <laughs> in this movie, in contemporary color, along with all of the really, really cool stage numbers, the great music and the beautiful imagery um, their movies always sound impeccable. You also have these moments where the teenage performers are kind of wandering around the arena or okay. the artists are like talking amongst themselves. Right. And it's just, it's, it's such a beautiful little calming. It's, it, it's not as boisterous as American utopia, but it is still really happy and bouncy. Um, so I, if people haven't heard of it, I'm not, it, it's, it's online somewhere, I'm sure. But um, I'll, wherever I find it, I'll include a link in the show notes. Contemporary Color. Is, and David Byrne is like the headliner and the kind of mastermind behind it. I, I kind of like that he's not always trotting out the same type of show. Like if Contemporary yeah. Color and American Utopia were the same, I'd be like, okay, dude, you got to find a new trick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What else did you have as, uh, as another side potentially for uh, American Utopia? So just one more kind of direct David Byrne connection would be his directorial debut, True Stories. Um, I actually think um, this came out a few years after Stop Making Sense. And American Utopia actually, to me, kind of feels like um, if the child of both Stop Making Sense and True Stories could kind of fuses both together into its idea because true stories kind of looks well it takes place in a fictional small town in texas 
think it's Virgil, Texas. And mm. it's kind of like an optimistic kind of town. They go to the mall. They have fashion shows. They have the kind of lip sync performance going on huh. to Talking head songs. Um, so it does have a Talking Heads soundtrack throughout. Of course. And it also touches on ideas that David Byrne brings up in American Utopia with um, characters. There's one character who just sits at home, watches TV, and that's like kind of her connection <laughs> yeah. to the outside world. I recently kind of did a triple bill of American Utopia, Stop Making Sense, and True Stories, which I had just seen for the first time. That sounds um, like a fantastic triple bill. Um, I am somewhat ashamed to say I actually had never even heard of this. So you have just made my whole my whole month, I think, because <laughs> I'm definitely going to dig into this. Uh, John Goodman's in it. Hootsie Kurtz, Spalding Gray. Great this, in this. this sounds amazing. Yeah, and they have a what looks like a fantastic Criterion physical release of this that comes with the album. I went to go try to buy it to see it but i just ended up renting it online but yeah i would recommend it if you All enjoyed right. american utopia i thank you for this i'm definitely going to be tracking this down um okay well my next connection to this movie is a move uh, a film you know a, a big part of this that we've kind of been touching on but not giving quite its due is uh the dance uh element of um American Utopia, which is really kind of crazy considering that everybody who's on stage, there's only three people on stage who are not playing an instrument. So the fact that there's this much movement and this much dancing, you know, everybody else has shit going on. So it's really impressive. But I thought about one of the best modern dance movies, and I mean modern in terms of the dance being performed and modern in terms of the age of the film. I go back to 2011 and I think about a film by Vim Vendors. Have you seen a movie called Pina? I've heard so many good things about this and I still haven't seen it, but it, it looks incredible from what I've seen. Yeah. Now the sad thing is that this is a film that needs to be seen in a theater because That's what I've heard. in this, here's why. And it, it, it sounds really sick to say this. This is a film that uses 3d really well um, because it plays with the depth perception of watching these dance of watching this dance perform and it's glorious like all of the numbers are they they play with various different things like there's the the poster itself highlights the one where it's it's there's a lot of water a lot of these dances are also put out into um they're taken off stage they're putting out into like into the city um you know and they use areas that are not just a stage or a rehearsal hall they get that joy and beauty that you see in american utopia and they they keep it though just on the dance you know and they they, they really let the beauty of what pina would bring to her choreography play out on a cinematic canvas wow that sounds fantastic even if you just like, you know, just watch the trailer. It's, it's, you'll, yeah. you'll get a huge one. You'll get a huge idea of what it's about by watching the trailer Two, You'll probably see traces of how the 3d played into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember watching the trailer, I think close to when it first came out, but mm -hmm. yeah, I'll, I'll revisit it and try to track it down. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, you know, watching the dance of Pina Bosch, you could, you really could do far worse with, uh, <laughs> with your time. And it's another film that's not even tremendously long. It's like 106 minutes. Um, all right. Why don't you close this out? What's one more film that somebody could watch going along with American Utopia? You haven't noticed I watched a lot of classic Hollywood type movies. <laughs> so I was trying to kind of think outside the box a little bit with this. Love it. And, David Byrne's optimism kind of reminds me of Frank Capra's sort of viewpoint on America and politics. So I was kind of thinking of um, both Mr. Smith goes to Washington and Mr. Deeds goes to town, very long titles, but um, (laughs) they both um, kind of have this idea of almost kind of like a, fantasy idea of goodwill in people and kind of just hoping for the best out of people, even though in both movies, they, there are characters that are actively kind of working against the protagonist, but the protagonist tries to keep moving forward and going to towards something better. The protagonist in both. I mean, the protagonist in most Capra movies is right. an eternal optimist. Which I mean mm-hmm. is part of what makes Frank Capra's movies so good. Um, you know, I think the the interesting thing about both of these movies and of their ilk, um, which I do enjoy, I, I enjoy these movies quite a great deal, is I feel like when people talk about the good old days, this is what they have in mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they forget that while all of these kinds of things were happening in America, that there was a whole other end of the population, be they immigrant, black, female, or some cases, a combination of those that were, that were not having as fun a time and were not as, as starry eyed and optimistic. But you know, that that's not to say that these movies are ill informing people of what the history was like. I, I do believe that, you know, maybe people who believe that these movies were the good old days could probably do with watching them again, because I, I feel like the message of Frank Capra, certainly in something like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, which you do hear a lot of politicians talk about, like why they wanted to get into politics. They say, like, I saw Mr. Smith goes to Washington and I, I saw one man making a difference against the machine. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. but did you watch what he did and what he yeah. had to go through to get there. There's still like a lot of underlying dark elements in the quote unquote Capricorn type of movies. Oh yeah. There's, there's always, you know, even listen, even in it's a wonderful life. There is some, there are some really shitty things in that movie. And like, you know, certainly listen to what comes out of Henry Potter's mouth. And, and I've seen that film. That's, that's actually the movie I've seen in the, in the theaters the most. Because for oh, a while that's... there, I would yeah, for a while there, I would see it at Christmas. There, there were theaters around town that played at Christmas, and for a while, like for like ten years running, I saw it every year. Um, and every the every year when when Henry starts talking in his office, like when he's trying to hire George, um, mm-hmm. the the audience would audibly gasp at some of the things that he'd said. I'm like, yeah, that was yeah. always there, guys. Um, yeah, if you take out Clarence the Angel, it's a pretty dark movie. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. Um, no, these are these are great choices because they do kind of kind of go very well with the hope that 
uh, David Byrne is trying to bring to us through dance and music. Like, you know, if, if I could set them to a Capra movie, I mean, it'd be kind of interesting to play them underneath the Capra movie and see how they go. I'm, I might try, try doing that now. Um, yeah. And it's been far too long since I watched Mr. Deeds goes to town, which I, I love that movie because I feel like too many people, when they hear Mr. Deeds, now they think about the shitty Adam Sandler, yes. movie, which is a real shame because this movie is fantastic. It's one of my favorites from Capra for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, Gary Cooper, Gary Cooper just getting a little bit more fun. Like Gary Cooper was always, you know, he's always known as the strong silent type, but watching him play something a little bit more aw shucks is so much yeah. fun. Yeah, I love him best actually in these sorts of comedies, just because it's so different from his persona, I guess you could say. Oh, totally. Totally love that. Oh, good choices. Uh, okay, we, we need to end there because I'm not, I'm not going to top that. There's no way. So uh, we'll go with those as the final other sides and um, call it a day for episode 247. I'm so grateful for Keisha for coming on this show. Um, come on back on Monday, November 30th for episode 248 because we will already be starting the holiday season. We will be discussing Happiest Season, which is showing up, I think, on Hulu. Keisha's work can be found at cinemacities.wordpress.com. Do you have anything coming up in the next few weeks that people can look forward to? I know you at the end of the month you do your little monthly wrap-up, but are you writing like for Noir Vember, is it for instance? Um I wasn't planning on it, but sometimes things come up and things inspire me to put something together, so who knows? If not, you can track what I'm watching on Letterboxd. I'm watching a ton of movies this year. Same username there, Cinema Cities. Very nice. And if people want to find you on Twitter, where can they find you? It's also at Cinema Cities. You, you, you did great with branding. I, I got to, you know, well, you chose the handle and just ran. Well, Instagram is a different story, but you can link that when you post this. So. I'll, 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 I'll get right on it. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Apple, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, uh, everywhere where better podcasts are found. Um, and if it's not found where you find your better podcast, drop me a note and I'll put it there. Um, everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on American Utopia can be left in the comments section of the site. You can email Ryan at the matinee.ca. Twitter, I am matinee underscore CA or facebook.com slash dark matinee. Any final thoughts, Miss Howarth? Uh, go watch American Utopia if you haven't seen it. Go watch it again if you already have. It'll lift up your mood immediately. <laughs> and, and watch more old movies. Yes, yes, for sure. TCM, a godsend this year. Criterion no, Channel, also amazing. So There we go. For Keisha, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.